and welcome to More Games Than Time. I'm Lee. I'm Roger. And this this episode we've got a a special broadcast, I suppose. It's uh, <laughs> We did our Christmas special um, where we spoke to previous guests talking about their games of the year. This is an Easter special of a sorts, an Easter egg of an additional game that we've played, catching up on previous episodes. Because we, we haven't talked about these for too long. We've been having... Guests instead. Yeah, so no discussion this time, but it's still a, it's a, well, you'll have seen if you've looked at your podcast player, it's a relatively long episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion of the games we've been playing. Uh, so I've been playing Xenon Profiteer. Uh, which I completely missed when it came out. It's a two to four player deck builder. Uh, and unlike most things with Zonovan in the title, it's not science fictional. Which, yeah, which completely threw me. This was recommended to me some time ago as a, a game beginning with the letter X, uh, <laughs> for reasons that uh, I, I won't bore you with. But it's something that crosses my radar every now and then, and I always have to remind myself it's not sci-fi. Yeah, um, it is quite literally about Xenon, extracting it from the atmosphere and selling it to fill various contracts like, you know, high-intensity headlights and whatever. Yeah, this is well, I mean, obviously a, a, a real industry about which I know absolutely nothing. Mm. And so designer is T.C. Petty third. Um, I don't think I've played anything else by him, but he, he seems to... He, it's a name that keeps turning up in, in a bunch of places. I'm not sure if he has right. really a distinctive style, but... Uh, must admit he's not a designer I'm familiar with. But most recently, uh, the G.I. Joe deck building game is his. Uh, right, again, a game is, I've never heard of. Which is, <laughs> I mean, it, it's also deck building, but I don't think it has a lot in common with this otherwise. Right. Um, so this, this is from 2015, and mm-hmm. I think it's still in that wave of deck building is a relatively new thing, uh, and, mm-hmm. and we're playing around with it and seeing what we can do with it. So, whereas I mean, with something as far like as publishers go, Eagle Griffin games normally do some decent things, don't they? Um, hmm. I think this is slightly before their their big box deluxe things that they've become more famous for recently. But the, the production values are still good, I assume. Yep, um, they're, they're decent quality cards. Uh, it, it's one of those um, four way dividers inside the box. So if you actually trust that and don't put stuff in bags, then it tends to get lost mm-hmm. inside the box. But yeah, anyway. Um, so from a mechanical point of view, um, I think what it's trying to do is make the trash cards interesting. I mean, every deck builder has trash cards that you don't want. Mm. Um, but in this, you're, you're basically sucking in air, which is for game purposes, nitrogen, oxygen, krypton and xenon, um, one mm-hmm. card of each. And as, what, as you, opposed, what, what happened to the carbon dioxide? Uh, it's, it's not enough for it to matter. Uh, there's actually a thing in the rule book that there was something else that they that they tried uh, including, and then it made the game too clumsy, so they removed it. Right. Um, and what what you're essentially trying to do is get all the other gases out of your hand, so that you have just xenon left. At which point you can put it to one side and then start filling contracts with it. Right. Uh, but in in a normal turn, you can only distill once. So you, so you distill the lightest gas in your hand. So if However many you've got of nitrogen, you, you throw the, throw all those back in the supply, but only mm-hmm. the nitrogen, if, if you've got any at all. Right. Uh, and you can, you can do an overtime turn, which will let you distill twice, but if you've got three gases, 
plus Xenon, that still doesn't help me very much. Uh, then, of course, you have, you have various upgrades which come up, um, mm-hmm. or va- varying utility, but some, some of them will say, you know, things like fill a contract with one less Xenon because you're using it more efficiently, or uh, whenever you remove a nitrogen, take money, or draw a card, or something something of that sort. I, right. I'm not convinced it's particularly connected to the actual physical hardware of Xenon extraction, but, you know, it's, it at least <laughs> looks plausible. Um, so, you, so that's, that's one side of it. Uh, the other side of it is the contracts. Uh, both of these you have to buy with a buy action, though the contracts are free. Mm-hmm. And one, once you've bought them, you can fulfill them. Uh, you, you can buy a contract you can't fulfill yet, but you cannot mm-hmm. fill another one until you've got that one. So, you, so you can lock it in and say, yeah, this one is mine, yeah. but you can't do anything else to, then until it's done. Um, end of game, I think, is five completed contracts or five upgrades. Mm-hmm. And so it's a relatively quick game. It seems to be, yeah. Um, I think it's one of those, you know, so many minutes per player, uh, because there isn't really much in the way of um, playing overlap. Right. And I, I suspect, uh, if you got a particularly AP player, then, then it, that could slow things down a bit, though that hasn't mm-hmm. been my experience and I've played with some moderately AP players. I think the main thing that really attracted me to it, other than I was told about it by somebody interesting, was it doesn't have that sense of a hard mid-game pivot that a lot of deck builders do. Um, if, you, if you think about something like Star Realms, with which I'm yeah. very familiar, um, you've got that point where you have to switch from buying cards that will get you more money to buy cards with to buying cards that will get you um, attacks to bash the enemy with. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, it's knocking down his health or whatever it is. Uh, and this doesn't really have that, um, because you always want Xenon. There, there is a bit of trade-off between, do I want to increase the size of my hands now, when I have fairly limited upgrades to do things with it, because it increases mm-hmm. the chance that I'll get more gases that I can't use in that single card draw. Yeah. Uh, or later, or which upgrades do I want? Um, you can, as an action, wipe the upgrade row, uh, and get get a fresh lot. Though what I, what I haven't mentioned is the bidding system. You've got bid counters. Um, each one you you can put these down as a bid action on your on any contracts or upgrades. Basically anything you would buy. Right. And that then reduces the price by one for you, uh, and increases it by one for everybody else. So if you've got a bid counter down and I buy the thing, I have to pay you one currency. Plus the cost of the thing to the bank. Okay, so this isn't bids as you'd normally understand the term. It's, in an it, it's not an auction system. It's, it's, it's more an expression of interest. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, you know, I'm saying, yeah, I, I want this at some point, and if anybody else has it, it's going to cost them more. Yeah. Um, and that that also protects upgrades and contracts against being wiped, which I, I mm-hmm. suspect would be advanced tactical play that I haven't really um, done very much of yet. I've played this. Hmm, Trying to work out, work this out. I, I've, I've played it a few times at least. Uh, BGG says eighteen. Um, right. It's not officially soloable. There is a solo mode on BGG uh, that I, that I've played a couple of times and quite enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just that not particularly well known. I think. I mean, it's. I have occasionally seen other people's copies, but 
it was never a game I heard a lot of fuss being made about. Yeah. Uh, even when it was new. Um, I mean, I guess it, you know, as a title, it's not especially catchy, is it? Hmm. It's... I, I suspect the assumption for for a typical gamer not knowing what what it would be what it was about would probably be well, yeah, it's, it's some some sort of space war thing. Yeah. So it, the, this is starting to become the sort of game I specialise in. The, the it's not hugely famous. Um, it's not you know the best revolutionary game in the world, but it's a game I really enjoy, and I, I would certainly miss it mm. if, if I um, had to remove it from my collection. I mean, that's an endorsement in itself, isn't it? Something you'd miss if you had to remove it from the collection. Mm, I've, I've certainly been trying to prune things down a bit recently, and this was never under consideration for leaving. Right. Oh, you're having a cull. Yeah, a bit. If, if I can ever work out a, a, a relatively low-effort way of getting rid of games to people who actually want games. It's, it's a challenge. Listing stuff on eBay is essentially writing a little essay for each individual item, as far as I'm concerned. I've got to take a load of photographs and get them uploaded and make sure, yeah, everything's exactly. Whereas if I yeah. go through BGG, I can say good condition, and everybody knows what good condition means. Well, there's, there's some debate about that. But, you know, <laughs> with, with regards to eBay, I must admit, I, I, I tend to agree. I got rid of a load of stuff on eBay um, October last year and swore I'd never do it again. It's become a very unpleasant experience selling on eBay. Oh, maybe we should have some... Uh, I, I did get rid of all my uh, first edition X-Wing stuff at, at, a, okay. at a very steep discount, but at least I found somebody who wanted it, so, you know. Fair yeah, that's something. that's something. Uh, at some point, maybe we should have, have a thing about where do you sell games? Yeah, that could be a good discussion topic. I keep thinking about having a BGG auction. I haven't tried one of them before, but yeah, not tried that myself. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, Zenon another, another topic for another time. <laughs> <laughs> Zenon Profiteer, as you say, by did you say not Tom Petty? Uh, TC Petty the third. TC Petty, it might be Tom Petty. Uh, that was published by Eagle Griffin. I don't think it's had any new editions. Uh, yeah, the, the the side of the box says two to five players. This is a misprint. Uh, there, there is really only the one edition out there. Um, some things call, talk about a second printing, and I, I think pretty much every, every version out there has the expansion in the box, the Tactics and Profiteers, right. which is just a few extra cards. Okay. Uh, but basically there is one version out there, so don't worry too much about exactly which version it is, because it's all the same. Very good. So, I've been playing Yggdrasil mm-hmm. by Cedric Lefebvre and Fabrice Rabeling. Um, this is uh, it's quite an old game now. I think it was 2011 it came out. Um, yeah. There was uh, a recent... I mean, over that time, it's one, it's one of those games that's moved through the decade. It's moved from being um, sort of widely available to a grail game that's out of print to back to widely available and sort of swung in and out several times. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be expansion... changing hands in the last couple of months for anywhere between sort of 40, 45 and 70 euros. For okay. Worth. So, yeah, I mean, at one point I think it was up over £100. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an expansion printed at one point, which I don't think was ever reprinted. However, half of that expansion was included in later copies that were printed of the base game. <laughs> In a way that board game publishers love to confuse people. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the expansion introduced some new 
gods. I'll get onto how the game plays in a minute, and that'll make more sense. Um, but as well as introducing new gods to the game, it also introduced special powers for all the gods. When they reprinted the base game, they reprinted the base game gods with those special powers. But not the so new the special ones, powers presumably. made it in, but not the new gods. Yeah. Um, and a couple of those gods were also available separately as promos. Mm-hmm. So, the typical convoluted <laughs> publication. So, so if you're getting, ha- if you're setting out get- to get hold of it, you may find yourself with overlapping bits potentially. Yeah. Potentially. There's also one other spanner I'm going to throw into the works of this checkered publication history. In 2019, 20, sometime fairly recently, um, there was a new version of Yggdrasil printed. Mm-hmm which introduced, I'm not sure, a campaign or a legacy version. Okay. Um, so I, that's the reason I think that the the original game, as I said, at one point there was over £100 for a copy, that, and you're saying it's now sort of 40 to 70 That sort of, I, I say, I can't remember if it's campaign or legacy version. Um, it's Yggdrasil, some kind of subtitle. Uh, Chronicles, <laughs> I think. Chronicles, there we go. That is, so that's... Builds on the same game and adds the other stuff to it. Um, uh, yeah, so, so that includes a, a six saga campaign. Yeah, there we go. So this is possibly, I would describe it as the most Euro of all cooperative games. <laughs> um, which it's, it's interesting. It shows its age um, in that, I think. But at the same time, it's still different to anything else that's out there on the market. So, whereas, I think most, it's probably not unfair to say that most cooperative games owe a lot to Pandemic, yeah? Yeah. You've got sort of area control over a map, um, and it's a card-driven game. And and you you have a choice of things to try to make better, and then at the end of your turn, things get worse. Yeah, exactly. So this is also a card-driven game. It takes that same core Pandemic thing of, at the start of your turn, you to draw a card from the top of a deck and that will do something bad to the board Mm -hmm. from there on it deviates wildly Um, so the setting of the game is um, some people think it's a very abstract game I'm going to stick with my Euro assessment and it's (laughs) no more abstract than any other Euro of that era yeah Um, well we've talked before about thematic disconnects and I'm I'm getting over it now (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so the setting of the game is um, Norse mythology Mm mhm you are playing as one of the Norse gods, and you are defending um, Asgard from what the game describes as evil forces. Mm-hmm. Now, these evil forces are six personalities. Um, you've got Fenrir there, you have the, the hound at the centre of the world, um, Nidog, the serpent that's around the world, you've got Loki, you've got Hel... Um, Certain Jormungandr, the other ones. Mm-hmm. Some of them you'll be familiar with, some of them perhaps not so much. I, I speak quite fluent Norse mythology. I had a feeling you might, and uh, <laughs> I wonder if this is a game you might want to borrow off. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you turn over a card, um, you will move the marker belonging to that evil force, as it's called, um, one step to the right. So this is why I, people describe it as a very abstract game. Mm-hmm. Um, you will then carry out a, a bad thing, for want of a better phrase. Um, each bad thing relates to that specific evil force. Yeah. <laughs> so 
So each of the each of those evil forces will do one bad thing consistently through the game. So you um, you, you draw Nidhogger and it, it eats a bit more of the roots of the tree, that kind of thing. Yeah. So Nidhogg in particular, um, the way that Nidhogg um, interacts with the game is it will move the first. So every so you move those um, evil forces to the right towards Asgard. They start out on the left and they move on a track towards the right. Mm-hmm. Nidhogg in particular, when you review uh, reveal him. Um, he will move the evil force that's furthest from Asgard one step toward. So he's effectively boosting the other ones. That's perhaps not the best representation of. I'm I'm not asking for for an exact mythological. Yeah, but that's the sort of thing that's going on. Um, As they as they get as each of those evil forces gets closer to Asgard, their powers get get amped up. Um, so that's one reason you want to keep them away. The second, of course, is that that's the way that you lose the game. Um, if one evil force makes it all the way to Asgard, then you've lost. Okay. However, on that track, there are two other sort of break points, as it were. Um, one of them's a couple of steps away from Asgard. And at that point, if three forces pass it, then you've lost. Mm-hmm. A couple of steps further back from that is a breakpoint with five evil forces, and again, if five pass that point, then you've lost. So you can't just keep bashing the one in the lead. You need you need to spread your efforts a bit. You really need to spread your your weight around. And the way that you are combating them, um, there's a die that you roll. You also boost that die. Um, you can use uh, as an elf token, which you can add after the die die result if you've got one or more elf tokens in your possession mm-hmm. um, there's also the lost souls of fallen vikings okay. so you can collect them um, and you have to use them before you roll the die so you're committed to spending them before you know what the result of the die is but presumably they're easier to come by than the elf tokens well yes and no the elf tokens actually are much easier to come by but are far more limited mm-hmm the way you're going to pick up the, the Lost Souls of Vikings is from bags. And this is where it really becomes a very Euro game. It's okay. a bag builder. Okay. Um, you've got four different bags in the game. They relate to four different islands, which are visited by the Valkyries. Mm-hmm. So one of the actions you can take... On your turn, you can take two actions, but not the same action twice. So one of your actions might be to fight one of those gods that's attacking um, Asgard and try to shift them back on that track. Yeah. One of the other actions you can take is to move the Valkyries one or two islands... Um, or one island to the left or one island to the right, or you can just leave them on the island they're on if you wish. Yeah. Um, and take... I think it's three tokens from the bag that corresponds to the island that they're on. The tokens are either uh, Viking souls or they're fire giants. If they're fire giants, (laughs) they go back into the bag again. Right. There are four bags. At the start of the game, the Valkyries start um, to the left of all the islands. They're not on an island. The nearest island, I think, starts with... 12 fire giants and 3 viking souls in the bag the furthest island starts with 15 viking souls and only 3 viking uh, only 3 fire giants so you're starting off with these 4 
bags that get progressively better if you move the Valkyries further towards them. But that presumably but takes more actions to get them there. It takes more actions to get them. It's going to take you at least four rounds to get there, because I say, you can't take the same action twice. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other actions you can take allow you to either put five Viking souls into a... If you've got five Viking souls so that are currently out and not associated with a, with a god, you can chuck five back into one of the bags of your choice. Mm. Um, or you can draw five tokens from one of those bags. Vikings stay in, you put them back in, and the fire giants come out. So you're trying to manipulate these four different bags. Yeah. Um, some of the, the evil forces, their special powers will also be manipulating those bags. <laughs> um, and then there's other things you can do. You can uh, get uh, you know, special... Uh, Tools. You can visit visit the Dwarven Smiths to get special tools. Um, so you can get Mjolnir, the the hammer for fighting Fenrir. Each tool has three um, pa- levels of power mm-hmm. and corresponds to one of the particular evil forces. And that'll give you a bonus of one, two, or three on your die roll, the same as Viking Souls would, but only for that specific evil force. But on the other hand, um, once you've got it, you still you've continued to have it. You don't have to spend it, presumably. Yeah, exactly. once you've got it you've got it Um, there's also ice giants which Loki will populate as his special power Mm. Um, they get in the way by blocking various actions around the board Um, (laughs) and also in a very weird sort of tacked on again Uri element there's a set collection aspect there as well these these ice giants are randomly drawn Mm -hmm. but four of them make up a set which if you get all four of them between you you don't have to do it as one player it's a cooperative game right if you get a a set of four then that will give you a one off effect which really helps in one aspect of the game it might um, allow you to suddenly take 15 viking souls into your possession without having to go into bags so they can be really powerful, but it is, say, very random as to what comes out. You can fight one off the top of the deck of uh, an ice giant, um, but Loki will reveal them and put them out in front of you anyway. And yeah. as I say, once they're revealed, then they start blocking things off and restricting what actions you can take. And presumably that the combination of where it is that you want to be able to use and which one it is that you want to collect the set will influence which ones you choose to fight in what order. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some if, if you know, it's quite a large deck of cards actually. So, some of them are block block actions you can take. Some of them um, boost the evil force's defense power, so they're even tougher to beat. And that again mm-hmm. will relate to yeah. You know, there's one ice giant that will boost each one. One of the ice giants gives an, a higher defense to the ice giants themselves. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the last game I played, I had six of these ice giants out, and suddenly I was getting lots of spaces on the board blocked off. Some of the evil forces had their defence boosted. The ice giants themselves had their defence boosted, and mm-hmm. choosing which ones to attack was quite difficult. Yeah. Especially since one of the actions that was blocked for me was going into those bags and drawing Viking souls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which gives you, I think, an idea that this can be a really tough game. Again, as befits... Um, Euros of ten years ago, and to be fair, the theme is not not, not an optimistic one. It's not. I mean, the, I will say the artwork of it is um, is brilliant. the it, The main game board is a representation of Yggdrasil itself, the mm-hmm. the world tree, um, in a very sort of, if I said to you, nineties fantasy art poster style. I think you'd have some idea what I meant. 
yeah, I'm look, looking at an image here on BGG, and yeah, I could see that being on the side of a van. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or a he- or a heavy metal prog prog album cover, Marillion, yep, maybe. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's it still holds up. This is, as I say, it's tough. It's more Euro-y than pretty much any other um, co-op game that I've experienced, at least. Um, it's just a little bit different to anything else with, I think, a very interesting theme, even if some other people may describe it as dry and abstract. Yeah, it, it certainly looks more, more accessible than a lot of euro games. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. The, the artwork, I think, helps with that. Um, the theme well, is and, and, it's and more nice, exciting nice than trading in the Mediterranean. Yeah, but also a nice clear board layout and makes you know, th- this is happening over here, that's happening over there. Things yeah, yeah. I, I think it's bad for you. Yeah, I think that's that's um, that's a good point. I think it is a, a game where you very quickly sort of familiarise yourself with the board, each area of the board. You don't you don't have a, a pawn or a, a player piece that you're moving to those areas, mm-hmm. um, but you're very aware that you know I can do one of those actions twice, and each ac- area of that board corresponds to a single action. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, looking at uh, Cedric Lefebvre, he's uh, produced a couple of other games that nothing, nothing I've actually played. Um, Space Gate Odyssey, mm-hmm. Shitena Offerings, and apparently he's, he's been involved in the latest uh, Cult Express, the Cult Super Express, which I haven't... It's basically a, a cut-down version rather than the huge thing that the original game has turned into. Right. Um, so, yeah. No, none of these are... Gosh, gosh, I have played this thing by this guy, but uh, he, he's clearly... You know, people work with him again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a good sign. And yeah, it it looks good. It's I can see that it, a lot of games you can play as just the mechanics, and then they become quite dry. And I think you could probably do that with this if you wanted to. But that theme is there, and it's not just oh well, you know, the, the, this 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 cube is a sack of beans. It it is there, and I mean. Yeah, as, as I say, perhaps, you know, we, we talked about Nidhogg earlier and the way that he interacts with the game, boosting other evil forces. I'm, I'm not, but I'm not sure how representative that is of Nidhogg mm-hmm. in mythology. Well, ba- basically, but, he, he gnaws at the roots of the tree. That, that's pretty much yeah, his thing. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you can kind of draw a, a, a line there. Um, but, you know, Lo- Loki bringing the ice giants into play, that's absolutely the way mm-hmm. that he works. Yeah. So I, I think the theme is there. Yeah, so it certainly sounds like something I'd like to try. Hmm. So uh, yeah, that's um, that's Yggdrasil by Cedric Lefebvre, Fabrice Rabelling, and published by Ludonaut, Though published possibly um, <laughs> the publisher isn't so important now as a, a mainly second-hand game, unless you're getting the the Chronicles version, well, which I think is still widely available. Have, have you played the Chronicles version? It's got a separate listing on BGG. Do you, it, will uh, you say it's a substantially different game or? I haven't played it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when they first announced it, I, I knew I already had this game and I was excited to see that they brought this out. But by that, when they actually released it, I think I was already coming round to the view that campaign games are not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was happy to have the version that I do have. As yeah. far as I understand, I don't, I think it's possible to play the original game with that Chronicles version. Right. But, so, you know, certainly the descriptions wrong. look similar, though presumably there yeah. are tweaks here and there. Yeah. 
So, yeah, in terms of uh, always being on the uh, cutting edge of, of uh, Cult of the New, uh, yeah, I have been playing for, for the last year and a bit uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Ah. Now, this is a game that I played... Um, I don't know, it might not have been when it came out, but it was certainly well before Season 2 came out, so I can't have been that long behind the curve. Yeah, it was a year and a half, two years, something like that, between them. Uh, so, I, I was playing this on Tabletop Simulator with my mate Nick, who lives in Plymouth, so we don't meet very mm. often. Um, he had played it before with a physical copy, but he carefully avoided g- giving me any hints about what was going to happen. Right. Uh, so I, I ended up in make, making a lot of the major decisions because he was just saying, well, yeah, we could do this, and I'm not going to tell you whether, whether I know it's going to be good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started at the beginning of 2021 and ended uh, about, about the end of March. Oh. And we won. Ah, <laughs> oh, hooray. Uh, that I, I, I will avoid spoilers uh, beyond, beyond the most superficial, uh, but... Uh, there is a quality level thing at the end of it, based on you know how, ma- how many of this do you have, how many of that do you have? Yeah, and we were just about by seven points or so edged into the highest quality level. Oh, well done! So, I, I've seen, I've, you know, again, it's a few years ago. I seem to remember we were somewhere in the middle, and I think it was one of those situations where I think some people in our group got a little bit annoyed by the scoring, which I didn't mm-hmm. really understand but there was this sort of view that oh well if I'd known they were going to score points like that I'd have done things differently which I thought was a little bit silly yeah uh, I'll come back to that but I, I would say I don't think the scoring was the point I mean it, it felt like an no. extra stuck on the end yeah, the, the, the important thing was we have won these games it, it, it's an experience it's not a game you're trying to win yeah um, and my overall reaction was I enjoyed it it was okay. I, but I didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't get the mm. feeling that a lot of people had at the time it came out of, gosh, wow, this, this, this is the game and I must get it and play it immediately. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm not saying out, setting out to be contrarian. There, there are many things I did <laughs> like about it. I, um, so I'm going to try to be even handed on this. Mm. Um, in, I suppose full disclosure, when I discovered Flashpoint Fire Rescue, which we ought to talk about at some point, mm. um, I, I did get rid of my copy of Original Pandemic because they were obviously in the same basic space, and I enjoyed yeah. Flashpoint a lot more. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I I don't I don't dislike Pandemic, um, and I I did very much like what the Legacy game did to it. So you know, in in game, let us say seven, you're obviously influenced by what's happened in game six in the setup, mm. and there is yeah. a bit of mechanical variety. Um, it is still always recognisably the base game, but yeah, it, but it's giving you new mechanisms, new things to do, um, mm. new objectives, and you can say, right, well, yeah, shall we go, go all out on this, or we still have the usual, uh, we 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 have to do these objectives, which is not all the objectives we might achieve. So, is there one that we're simply going to say, let's not bother to even to try, and is that going to come mm. back and bite us next month? Well, probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that did great with me a bit uh, mm. was the extent, particularly towards the end, that it re- seemed to be relying on randomness for tension. We, we lost uh, four games overall. yeah, And they were all the first play of the month losses. Mm. And I think either two or three of those we looked at the initial infection draws and and pretty much knew that we'd lost at that point. 
Yeah. Simply because yeah. of where it was and the restrictions we were going to have on treating it. Now, mm. after that point, uh, you can mitigate the infection cards quite a bit. There's stuff in, mm. the stuff that works in baseline pandemic. You know, you, you know what's in the, uh, infection discard. So, you know, that's not going to come up again quickly until the next epidemic comes out. Yeah. Um, and you, you stay aware of when that might be happening. And there, mm. there are more things that legacy adds. Um, the thing that scraped with me several times was there's nothing you can do to affect your own card draws. Uh, no. The, the no. is it the city cards, the, the ones that yeah. go into your own hand. Yeah. Uh, if, if the reds don't come up, you ain't curing red today. Yeah. And uh, unless you get a cure, you're not going to stay ahead of it. I can't remember, and we might come back to this in a moment. I think I can't remember if the cards. Uh, Evenly, um, evenly distributed in that deck or not. Now, I know in the later games, in Pandemic Season Zero, they're definitely not, which leads to another frustration with those kind of, oh, you need a certain number of these cards. I think um, it's one card per city, same as base Pandemic. Yeah, so um, depending on the number of cities in a, a particular continent or of a particular colour, that can be a bit more swingy. That's a thought. I, um, I, did, I didn't think of counting those, but yeah. Yeah, but... I say we'll just come back to that in a moment. I, the thoughts occurred to me. Um, talking about this and the previous game, we both assumed that everybody listening to this knows what pandemic is. Is that a fair assumption? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, with the sort of people I hang around, hang around with and talk board games with, it is certainly a safe assumption. Um, yeah, I think it probably but... is, but maybe we should do a, a quick explanation. Okay, of yeah, that, that's fair. Uh, so it is a cooperative game, uh, by Matt Leacock from, is it 2011 or thereabouts? Uh, I think it might be earlier than that. Is it 2006? Certainly quite an early one, hitting the, uh, leading edge or before the leading edge of the, yeah, 2008 says BGG. Um, and one of, yeah, certainly one of the first popular co-op games. Mm. Uh, it, it is fully cooperative. There's a, there's a variant that isn't, but the the standard gameplay is. Uh, you've got four diseases that are infecting cities around the world. Um, they spread by card draw mostly, and yep. you, your your job is to find cures for all of them while preventing any of them from taking over. Basically, yeah, if you have too many outbreaks, you you have mm-hmm. infections in cities that are already heavily infected. Which, as we've all learned over the last couple of years, it's a very simple thing to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, there are various things that can cause a cascading failure, uh, and and then then the game is lost for everybody. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I played the original uh, a fair few times. It was before I was logging games, so I don't know how often I played it, but um, I think it's fair to say that I got reasonably competent at it. I was I was usually winning when I played the base game roles, though there was an expansion which had roles that I almost always lost with. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it's now held up as one of the sort of classic family weight gateway games, isn't it? Mm, I think that's fair. Uh, and in terms of accessible cooperative games, I think it's a good example. I... Yeah. And th- there have been a lot of... Well, I mean, they, they are to some extent different games. I mean, Pandemic Iberia is still about disease, but, uh, there's the, 
pandemic fall of Rome, where instead of diseases, yeah. you've got barbarian invasions. Yeah, uh, and, and, and it's is, similar um, core mechanisms, but it's not identical. So no, I, I think there, calling it pandemic, pandemic rising tide, yeah. which I've got on my shelf, and we might talk about in a future episode. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, you know, again is set in the Netherlands, and um, you're, you're trying to hold back the rising sea levels. Yeah, I think calling it pandemic is probably good from the branding point of view, but I think it does yeah. it a disservice if you've already played pandemic and think, well, you know, I've played that. So yeah, there's a Cthulhu yeah. version as well, I believe. Isn't uh, yes. Uh, what's it yeah. called? Uh, yes, I, 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 I've played it. It might, it might even just be Pandemic Cthulhu. <laughs> I'm Reign of Cthulhu or, yeah, Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu. I, I have actually yeah. played that. Um, it was okay. <laughs> I've, I've, I think, yeah, I've heard mixed things about it. I think some people absolutely love it. Um, some people not so much. But, uh, yeah, so that was Pandemic. We were talking, um, specifically your experiences with Season one of Legacy. Yeah, so when, when it came out, the, the main Legacy game people had met because I think it was the only other one was Risk Legacy, and uh, yeah, I think that was the only other one then. Yeah, I think it's a fair point to say that this was the Legacy game that was built on a reasonably solid initial game platform. I mean, Risk, it's okay. It's, I don't think it's hugely popular now among people who, who realise that they have mm. more a choice of more things to play. Um, I mean, I will say, Risk Legacy was a very successful game at the time among board gamers. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't get talk, talked about much now. Um, but I think that and Pandemic Legacy point to something pretty important about Legacy games that isn't often spoken about. Which is, to have a successful Legacy game, it needs to be a solid board game that people are already familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the legacy games that have um, not been so successful have been, like, Seafall's a good example. That was the one I was thinking of, which I think was the third legacy game to get published. Yeah, and I think the issue with that was the first couple of rounds, they're trying to teach you how to play a game by introducing rules, the first couple of rounds, the first couple of games, mm. trying to teach you how to play a game by introducing rules very slowly. And that means for the first couple of games, there isn't really a game there. Yeah. Which just causes people to switch off and not play it. And, of um, course, it, it didn't have the familiarity that people have with the pandemic and risk names. No, exactly. But I think, you know, not just the familiarity with the names, but with the rules. People mm, yeah. were able to sit down and know that how to play this game. And then more could be layered on top of that between games. Yeah, I and mean, certainly we went into season one of this uh, saying, yeah, all right, we know how to play pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and the first so. game is pretty much just based pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, then, it, it tweaks things a bit, but in terms of the gameplay, yes. Yeah. And then things get uh, added in more um, from game to game. And I know you haven't played Season 2 or Season 1, um, but I think, although you don't need to have played Season 1 before playing those other games, mm. there, there, there is an assumption that you probably have, and there are more tweaks to the core rules of Pandemic from the first game. Right. So certainly it was hugely successful, hugely popular. Um, yeah. I, I will admit to a, a slight personal drawback because I, I don't really like the legacy game model. Mm. Um, I think partly because I, 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 I categorize games in much the same way I categorize books, as in you don't break them, you don't damage them, you don't scribble your name in them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, yeah, books are a good point. I always remember my grandmother telling me constantly that books were my best friends and I should treat them well. Um, as you say, board games sort of fall into that aspect as well, that I, I want to look after them. And even if 
I want even if I'm going to pass them on to somebody else or anything else, you know, I want to pass them on in good condition. Yeah. What happens to them after that is somebody else's somebody sure. else's problem. But but, but rather also, in my possession, I want to look after them. Yeah, uh, but also I want it to be a thing that I can pass on to somebody else. I mean, we, yeah, we've talked absolutely. before about uh, environmental costs of recycling of board games, which turns out to be mm. way harder than I at least thought it might be. Mm. Um, but. You know, yeah, if, if a, I'd bought a torn-up playing card, cannot be recycled. Yeah, and 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 if I've played through a physical copy of Pan Leg One, uh, there is basically nothing I can sell to somebody else. Uh, mm. if, if they want anything like the experience, they're going to have to buy their own new copy. Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, there's there's certain things you can do. I have known some people frame the boards and put them up on their walls. Mm. As a sort of um, memento, I suppose, of the experience. What, what I don't think you would be doing, or at least certainly I didn't feel any inclination to do it, is play regular Pandemic on the board afterwards. No. No, I can't think uh, why you do that. It was talked about originally, but I don't see it. Yeah, I, th- I mean, you see that with a lot of legacy games. It's almost uh, when people talk about, oh, it's got this finite life, and people and the, the designers or the publishers will say, oh no, you can carry on playing it forever and it'll be a unique copy that's just for you. And, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> just just play normal Pandemic if that's what you want to do. Mm. I'm th- thinking about the random setup. Um, I think we talked about the crew a little while back. Mm. And I, I, cert- I noticed playing that quite a lot uh, because it was on BGA and, we, and the local gaming group played it quite a bit during the Pandemic. Main lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um the same mission can be trivially easy or nearly impossible based on which combination of uh, cards you draw for which goal. So yeah. when you say, you know, it took us three tries to beat mission 10, I, I don't feel that I have beaten mission 10. I feel that mm. we got a lucky combination and maybe if I played it again, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the thing I do get less with Flashpoint because the setups are a lot more consistent. Yeah. yeah or a particular map may well be easier or harder than other maps, but most of your games on map X are going to be about as hard as each other. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we we were playing two players. Uh, we had one character each, which the, the, there's been argument about this. It seemed to work quite well for us, particularly because on Tabletop Simulator you have only got the single screen that's your view of everything, so it, it's yeah. uh, hard to keep track of a lot of moving parts. Um and I think because of that, perhaps we, we ended up, I suspect, spending a lot more time moving around the map, uh, rather than sharing knowledge. Because, you know, mm. if, if something needs to be dealt with, there are only two of us who can get there and deal with it. Yeah. Um, but it, but it worked pretty well. Uh, the writing was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I have to be fair to Nick here because he was being very careful not to comment on my comments, but, when the initial thing that happens in game one happened, I made a guess of broadly what the course of the plot was going to be, and I was right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's nothing original. I mean, they're they're going for that sort of Hollywood blockbuster thing, aren't they? Yeah, Which in itself is. But, yeah. but because of that, uh, again, avoiding spoilers, um, a bit later in the progression, there is a particular thing that the game offers you as an option, and I was immediately suspicious of it. Yeah, and this, and I turned out to be right to be so, uh, mm. and and I think, yeah, you know, would would I have enjoyed it more if if that thing turning out to be an error had been a surprise for me? Well, maybe. Mm. 
Uh, but I mean, I, I don't think it's unfair to say if you want a good story, read a book, don't play a game. <laughs> yeah, but that, I think that is one of the things that Legacy is trying to offer. Um, it is, it is, but I mean, I, I guess it's churlish of me, but, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, maybe this is why, um, campaign games don't, <laughs> don't agree with hmm. me, I've realised. The idea of a campaign game is, is wonderful. Um, for me personally, I found that they require too much between games upkeep if it's for the solo thing. If it's a social setting and somebody else can take care of that, fine. Um, but as a, it, just as a story experience, yeah, read a book. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember which, which games we talked about. There, there are certainly games about what, about which I feel that you know, may, maybe the gameplay is not all that in itself, but it generates interest. Oh, well, Firefly, for example. Mm. Um, it generates interesting stories, or at least it puts, gives you the elements from which you can then generate interesting stories of, you know, what, what if these particular people were... Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's a slightly different thing. You're talking about that in a single game session, aren't you? As opposed to I trying... Am, it's, it, true. It's, it's not. It's not a scripted thing like a legacy game is, or a campaign game is, or those other mm. things. Um, and certainly... Um, We've got somebody in our group here, Frank, who was on the podcast um, a couple of episodes ago. I, I I don't think I've ever discussed a board game with him playing it, and it can be something. It can be Zombie Dice, which I think we mentioned in that game. Mm-hmm. I've never played a board game with him where Frank hasn't said it tells a great story. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the game doesn't tell a great story. It might give you the tools for you to tell you one in your head, but that's a yeah. different thing entirely. I mean, as someone who does quite a lot of role-playing games, that's uh, something I'm primed to do. You know, take take some bare bones and then spin them up into, well, why would that happen? Who's thinking Mm. which way to make that happen? So that's something I enjoy doing. So, yeah, it's it's a good distinction. Um, I did go back and uh, watch and read some of the the early rave reviews of Pandemic Legacy 1. Mm-hmm. And I can't yeah, say they're wrong, um, mm. except for one thing where they said everybody's copy is going to be different at the end of the game, which is technically true, but basically the same things are going to happen. Yeah, uh, from yeah. from, yeah. from a mean, high view, they just happen yeah. in different places. That's, yeah, that, that's the same way of saying that technically every deck of playing cards in the world is unique <laughs> because mathematically they will all be in a different order. Yeah, uh, but apart from that, and. It, it didn't grab me the way it clearly did them. I, this mm. isn't an over-familiarity with legacy games, because this is the only legacy game I've played. I mean, mm. maybe put it down to my clinkered black heart, um, maybe put it down to lowercase p pandemic fatigue. Um, <laughs> I, I was never dragged in the way a lot of other people clearly were. So th- this is not to say all those people are wrong. This is to say you may be a weirdo like me. <laughs> I think, I mean, again, it's a few years since I played it. Um, strangely, I don't think I've ever actually played the original Pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I have played all of Season 1. I've played all of Season 2. Um, for the last six months to a year, um, we've been trying to play Season 0, um, which has mainly been a problem because of my own non-attendance of club nights. Mm-hmm. Um I've said I've got Rising Tide on the shelf behind me. I've also played and or owned several other pandemic-adjacent games, <laughs> um, including Defender of the Realm, which is often described as fantasy pandemic. Okay, I'm, I'm not familiar with I don't know if you're familiar it, with that. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I think you you don't. This is going to sound really stupid. You could say this to any about any board game. You don't need all of these games. <laughs> sure. Well, um, I mean, that, that, that is, all, that is all why variations on a theme, and I, I think I enjoyed playing season one with the group that I was in. Hmm. Um, and I think, like I just spoke about with campaign games generally, to me they're a social experience. Yeah. Um, I, so I enjoyed it in that context. Would I sit down and play it solo? I know people that have. Yeah, well, well, Nick did on, on his first playthrough. Um, for that matter, I know a couple of people on the forum um, who who were saying that they are now getting ready to to uh, play it either solo or with people who live in the same house as them, because mm. the attempts to get a group together to play play it with you know three or four have failed. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I think that's it's say uh, it doesn't appeal to me, and I think that's because of something we just talked about, and that's that the story, if that's what you're playing it for, is not that strong. Mm. Yeah, I, I I do think you would have to add a lot to the bare bones that you get to make it a compelling story, and you could do that. Mm. And I wonder, actually, if you're having played it online plays into your feelings about it in that regard. Possibly. I mean, I don't, I, what, we, we did both keep copies of the final game state, um, mm. but it's not the same as have, having this box that I can look at and this board that I can say, the, oh yeah, that's where I crossed off that. Yeah, not the same as having a box, and also not the same as sitting across the table from someone. This is true, yeah. I mean, Nick, Nick is someone I, I play quite a lot of games with online already, mm. and I can't remember whether we've mentioned this tabletop simulator I've, I've been saying quite a bit recently, because it's that relatively immersive 3D environment, I find mm. gives me more of the feeling of sitting at a table playing a game than something right. like BGA that's, that's flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, also because it doesn't enforce the rules, you have to re- remember what the rules are for yourself. Right, yeah. Um, but th- this is, yeah, th- these are questions of individual psychology and what, what I, what I get out yeah. of a game, which may well not be what you get out of and so on. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I did enjoy it. I'm glad I played it. I, I certainly don't regret the games. Um, but it, it, it didn't wow me the way I was, yeah, I probably have liked it more if I hadn't seen all those initial rave reviews that, that were conditioning me to expect something mm. amazing. Yeah, yeah, a classic case of um, overhyping something in your own mind. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Pandemic Legacy, which is uh, Rob Davio and Matt Leacock. Yeah. So, in keeping with the playing old games, <laughs> um, I've been playing another game from 2011. And it's one of my very favourite games, and that's The Lord of the Rings, the card game. Mm-hmm. Um, often referred to online as Lord of the Rings LCG, not TCG, because that would be The Lord of the Rings, the trading card game <laughs> from the 90s. Yep. This, this is the problem when you have licences and IPs. And you have to call it Lord of the Rings, because that's the name people recognise, yeah. Yeah. Um the game itself, um, despite being the Lord of the Rings, well, I was going to say it doesn't take place during the Lord of the Rings novels, although there's a caveat to that, which we might get to in a moment. Hmm. Um, the base game and most of the expansions are set between the events of The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings proper. Right. Which gives you... So, so there's gathering darkness, but not the great big war that everybody knows about. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's kind of a nice semi-blank canvas to sketch out again, like we were just talking about, stories on, mm-hmm. I think. 
Um, because, you know, there are things that are known. Um, you, you know that Aragorn is growing up at those times and those kind of things. There are things that are unknown. Having said that, all of the characters from Lord of the Rings, including Eowyn, who, you know, isn't born yet, <laughs> are present in the game. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a problem with IPs, I suppose, and perhaps a particular problem for my own nitpickiness as a paid-up member of the Tolkien Society. <laughs> um, so this is an LCG. It's a, a co-op LCG. I think it might have been the first co-op LCG. Mm, um, yeah, it seems plausible, at least. Yeah. Um, and it plays very well solo. Um, there is active debate online you'll find as to whether you need to play two-handed when you're playing solo um certainly one of the the scenarios in the core game box you will need to play two-handed <laughs> um but other than that scenario i've always played one-handed um and never had a problem with that uh, you so lose it, out. It, for, it, presumably it's fully cooperative, but it, it doesn't rely on you uh, having secrets from the other player. No, there's no. It's all open information. Um, there is one action in the game, um, which is a ranged ability, um, which allows you to attack enemies in another player's um, area. Yeah. So you lose out on that one ability. I think that's the only thing that you lose out on playing one-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, in essence, the way that the games works, uh, it's a deck construction game. So, you know, much like Magic the Gathering, you'll construct your deck before you play the game. Um, there is uh, an enemy deck, which will contain locations, it will contain enemies, it will contain treacheries, various things that hurt you in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, at the start of your turn, you reveal a card from that deck. Um the more players are on the game, the more of those cards you reveal. Um, the game then moves through phases, and this can, I think, can confuse new players. It's often referred to as a very fiddly game. Um, and they, I think people almost get too concerned about where the action windows are as to what when you can do certain things. Right. Very broadly speaking, if you want to do something, you probably can. But there's a specific um, spot in the order of things that happen. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a specific, there's a specific order to the round. So I mean, that, that's something I actually like, um, because you know, I, I, I'm the sort of person who makes checklists for things when they have to happen in a particular order. So yeah, yeah. so probably because once once the first thing you do at the start of a round, um, you draw up your own hand, um, and you deal a, a resource token to each of your heroes that you control. You control three heroes in the game, each player. Mm-hmm. Um, those resource tokens can be spent to play cards from your hand. Um, the next thing you do is you commit players to a quest, which basically is uh, exhausting, or in old Magic the Gathering parlance, tapping a card, turning sure. it through 90 degrees. After that is when you reveal cards from the top of the enemy deck. They have a threat value on them. If your quest value that you're questing with outweighs the threat value in the staging area, so there might still be some cards left over there from the previous round, mm-hmm. um, then you make progress on the current quest. Okay, or if you've, or, or if you've got an active location on the current location, then that would then spill over onto the quest if you 
overachieve on the location. Right. Once you've done that, you move on to the travelling phase. If you don't have an active location, you can move one from the staging area to in front of you. Then you move on to the combat phase. Check your threat level, which I won't get into because that's just more descriptions we don't need. Mm -hmm. Um, Check your threat level. If... uh, if an enemy in the staging area has a lower threat level than your threat level, then they will move down and attack you. They exhaust to do that. You have to exhaust to defend. Or if you choose one of your heroes, and only your heroes, not any other ally character cards you've got in play, yeah. can take that damage undefended. You can... And it has to be one, unless you play... I think there's a card that allows you to defend with more than one, but basically it has to be one character that takes the defence. Mm-hmm. You can then attack, and you can combine attacks from different characters you control. Yeah. And that's the end of the round. Um, what confuses people is the windows for playing cards. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, basically, if you're going to play an ally or a location, you have to play that at the start of the round, before you go questing. Yeah. If it's an event, basically you can play that at any time. There is When you look at the rule book. It looks convoluted, but there is a window for playing event cards after pretty much every stage. Sure. Um, and I think that's say that sort of almost overly detailed. You can play a card here. You can play a card here. Confuses people into thinking it's more complicated than it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what this is reminding me of, uh, for an obvious reason, because they share a designer, uh, is mm. the Arkham Horror card game, uh, which came out five years later. Yeah. Um, that that's yeah. also, also uh, that that has Knight French as a co-designer and his sole designer of the Lord of the Rings game, and mm-hmm. I, it, it certainly sounds as if they've inherited. Well, basically, they, they've started off with Lord of the Rings and then obviously, you know, chucked out the stuff they didn't want to keep, added different stuff. Yeah, and I think when Arkham Horror LCG came out, um, there was a a fair amount of talk that oh, it fixes Lord of the Rings, um, and I think that really depends on what you're looking for in a board game. Hmm. Um, I, I think so it, it would perhaps case. be hard to justify having both in one's collection unless one were a, a thoroughgoing fan of both original. Yeah, unless you're either really into LCGs or a real fan of both Lord of the Rings and um, and the Arkham Horror Universe. I'll say Arkham Horror Universe as opposed to Lovecraft Universe because I know it's you know subtly different. <laughs> yeah, we can have a whole separate rant about that sometime. But uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the Arkham Horror LCG, I've never played the Arkham Horror LCG. Um, I, I have once, my, I've tried it, yeah, it was okay, but no, nothing to... I think, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it obviously introduces an extra level of randomness um, with that token draw bag. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that it, people would say it fixed of Lord of the Rings is the deck construction aspect. It significantly simplified that, from what I understand, that you have your character, this is your deck of cards... And you can earn cards to upgrade cards within that deck. Is that correct? Um, yeah, we we only played the one game, so I, I only really touched on this. But um, the impression I got is that you do have more customization options um, if if you if you yeah you, know, you have two or three standard builds to start with, and mm. if, if you then want to tweak those even at the start of the campaign, you can a bit. Yeah, but but you're quite limited, and and a lot of the customization is going to happen with the step by step upgrades, as you yeah. say. And it's more of a it's more of a story experience, I think, isn't it? You're, you're, you've, you choose your character with their deck, and you follow that through. Uh, um, yeah, to, to the point that um, playing a particular scenario 
uh, you're probably going to do once, or at least you know once you you want yeah. to beat it once, and after that you've from, you've beaten it, you're probably not going to play it again. Yeah, exactly. So Lord of the Rings, the LCG, um, that started out as as I say, it was, it was the first of these cooperative LCGs, and it started out more on that traditional board game LCG or you know um, trading card game model. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a scenario; it was a game you built, you constructed your deck. For that scenario, yeah. Um, if you played and lost, and you went away, you built a new deck. You had a better idea of what that deck needed to do to beat it. Sure. So it was a very mechanically driven game. Um, which isn't to say that you have to min max it. Um, that is one way to play the game. Um, people like to a bit like you know Magic the Gathering. People you can go onto websites online. People constructing the best decks and the most powerful decks mm-hmm. and all of these kind of things. Sure. But you can approach it as I do in a more thematic way. I like to have it. I have three decks which I tweak between games. Yeah. Um, I have my Rohan deck, my Dwarf deck, and my Eagle deck. Each of them <laughs> does slightly different things. Yeah. Um, but broadly, I like to keep Dwarves in my Dwarf deck. Mm-hmm. And Rohan in my Rohan deck, and I don't like throwing Gondor or Elves into either of them. Yeah. Um, so they're not as powerful as they could be, but I like to play it as a more thematic game. Um, and what also happened, so with the expansions, what happened is, it, there's two different kinds of expansions. Um, the first kind is divided into deluxe and, um, adventure packs. Mm-hmm. And I will say, <laughs> like we're talking about... But, yes, this is published by FFG. There are 16 million tiny little expansions. Well, what I was about to say, um, after talking about Yggdrasil earlier and the publication history of that, Lord of the Rings LCG has recently been republished mm-hmm. with a different um, publication standard. That They are moving away, FFG, from their old model. I, I, as I understand it, uh, this, this, there's a lot of retailer pressure coming in here. They would much rather have, you know, one one big box to sell a year than 15 little expansions that get lost in in the cracks. Yeah. So I think I haven't looked into this in, into this in detail, but I think what they're doing with the new reprint is that um, adventure packs and deluxe packs are being combined into one box. Yeah. They're, they're so selling, what used to happen? Uh, a a campaign cycle. expansion, for example. Angmar Awakened. Yeah, exactly. So what used to happen is you used to buy the deluxe box for this campaign, um, which would have three different campaigns in it, um, as well as some... uh, Well, three different campaigns, three different scenarios in it, Mm -hmm. um, as well as some hero cards. And then there would be six different adventure packs, which would also have hero player cards in each of them, and another set of... um, enemy cards which would mix with some of the enemy cards from that deluxe pack so, so, so you six, could do a certain amount of tweaking the deluxe that made, yeah, yeah they made a campaign as those as those deluxe and adventure cycles as they were called moved on story became more important mm-hmm. there was a very loose story which began with the core box um and that built on through the first uh, cycle of six adventure packs, which went with the core box, but no deluxe box, where you were um, tracking Gollum um, yeah. as he escaped from uh, Thranduil's prison. Um, 
and Aragorn was trying to seek him. Of course, you weren't necessarily playing as Aragorn. You were, but you were hunting Gollum through the wilderness at sure. that point. There was a, then an abrupt change. Suddenly, you were going to the mines of Moria <laughs> as the dwarves. Yeah. And then from there, you went to Gondor, and from Gondor, it began the the story became more. Um, integrated both within the the cycles and between cycles, sort of, they took you to a geographic point where the next cycle would take off. Yeah, and, and I, I think one that, of the things they're saying about the the new uh, core set is that it has cards for campaign mode included in the core box, so you can string individual uh, adventures together even before mm. you start buying expansions. Which is yeah, which is interesting, I think, and. Um, yeah, you know, if you're into campaigns, I think yeah, that that is an interesting way to go. Um, there was also that I don't think there was power creep over the years in the way that, say, Magic: The Gathering has, um, and beca- because of its cooperative nature, there was never any need for there to be cap power creep. Mm. You were never trying to outcompete other players, um, and there was never these sort of limited cards things that traditional trading card games have. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not at all fond of the whole you buy a thing and you don't know what you're getting model. I'd much rather have something like this where you, where you do know what, what's coming yeah, in the box. And I mean, to, to this day, some of the most powerful cards that are still, as I say, you go online and there are people that are building these power decks. Mm-hmm. And some of the most powerful cards that are always in those decks are cards from the core set still. Yeah. Um, so that was never an issue. Um, but of course, this, what, what has changed over time is, more and more keywords and more and more little um little sort of extra rules, extra things mm. that are played around the edges of the game. Does, because of as you say, it was designed originally by Nate French, but lots of designers, as is common with FFG, lots of designers have been on the team that have worked on these cycles over the years and each sure. of them has put their own little stamp on things. Yeah. Um and it's been interesting watching as you know, as they do some, some of the most interesting things. Once, uh, once a year at Gen Con, um, they would generally bring out uh, a Gen Con tournament deck, effectively. Except, of course, it's a cooperative game. There wasn't a, a tournament in that sense. Mm. Um, and they did some really interesting things with these over the years. So, there's a couple of years. Most recently, they did some um, some design your own level kits. Mm-hmm. Um, going back, they sort of toyed more with the limits of the game within a traditional role-playing um, media. So there was one set that was all about um, dungeon delving. Yeah. There was one that was effectively a pitched battle. Um, and then there was possibly my favourite one. I've never managed to beat it. It's just about impossible from what I can tell. It's less, I suppose, you design exactly the perfect deck for it. And that it turned it into a murder mystery game. <laughs> Um, Murder at the Prancing Pony. It takes its lead from um, something Barleyman Butterburst says in the Fellowship of the Ring. He says that there's been some strange goings on around here recently, and you know there, there was somebody killed here recently. So this is Murder at the Prancing Pony. Mm-hmm. You've got to find out who did that murder and why. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so there's some really interesting things going on with those, and then. I said the expansions divide up. There's the deluxe and adventure cycles on one hand. The other side were the saga expansions. Um, the saga expansions, I think, appeal to more people, maybe, than the deluxe and adventure cycles. They actually appeal to me less. Um, and what the saga expansions are doing are following the events of The Hobbit and of The Lord of the Rings faithfully. Okay. 
So you're playing through those books. And they do introduce a campaign system as well. Um, you will often, one player will often have an additional hero. So in the, the Hobbit, um, saga expansions, one player will be controlling Bilbo in addition to their, um, normal heroes. Right. Um, and there are things called boons and burdens, which are extra cards, positive or negative, which are earned during, um, a, a scenario and carried forward to future scenarios. Mm-hmm. So that sort of builds up the, I think the game was out for a couple of years before they went down the track of doing those and it builds up the story aspect more, um, and feeds more into that, um, Arkham Horror LCG campaign type thing that we were just talking about. Sure. Yeah, the impression I get with Arkham Horror is, is that the usual play is, you know, four or five or six individual games and then that, that, mm-hmm. is, that is basically that, that cycle of expansions or whatever. Uh, for, yeah. for those heroes, and then you'll probably start with a different set of heroes for a, for a new sequence. Yeah, and I mean, this is a game as you'd expect that's been around so long. Um, over the years, there've been a lot of different fan websites about it. There've been a lot of different fan podcasts about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been lots of designer uh, designer, lots of um, homemade different um, scenarios that you can download, and cards, player made cards that you can download. Up, I started doing some. Um, scenarios and cards which I put on BGG before I was designing my own games um, and so did Tristan Hall designer of Bloom of Killforth mm-hmm. um, before he released his, his own games he designed some scenarios which are downloadable from BGG using just the cards in the core box so that's you know an added bit of value for people that have got the core box but don't want to be spending more money at that point maybe Yeah. and there was something else I was going to say oh that was the other thing just going down that route on BGG of stuff that um, players have designed um, there's a team of French players who have designed a saga which incorporates all of the expansions <laughs> so they, they take that idea of the boons and burdens of character of cards that carry through from one scenario to the next and they've applied it to every expansion ever released right so if you want to go down that rabbit hole, it's there. <laughs> so what, you're, you're effectively getting a, a single long sequence of games. Yeah, yeah. As, and as I say, you know, there, there is a, a story between those cycles which um, gets... The, the storytelling aspect gets improved as the game goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the, they really drill down into it and, and, and embellish it and make it into a solid campaign. Mm, I, I was actually really interested when you were mentioning that this is set between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings because of the role-playing games, official Middle-earth role-playing games mm-hmm. that I'm familiar with. That, that's the choice that two of them make, uh, the, the mm. more recent ones, Adventures in Middle-earth and The One Ring. Yeah. Because uh, uh, the, the early one, Middle-earth role-playing uh, in the 1980s, mm-hmm. Most I, it, it did have stuff across the different time periods, but mostly it was um, immediately post-War of the Ring. And, right. I mean, that's fine for having adventures. There's still stuff out there, but a lot of the big stuff and a lot of, a lot of the things that might be the reason why I'm playing a Lord of the Rings game rather than a generic fantasy game have yeah. explicitly left the world at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, people bought it anyway because... There wasn't an alternative, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that's a deliberate change in the more recent ones. Yeah, and I mean, I've played the One Ring as well, and as yeah, as I said at the start of this, I think that that sort of semi-blank canvas of you know some stuff that's happening, you know stuff that is going to happen, and stuff that's happened, but there's still 
there's enough um, vagueness of you, you, know, you can explore without knowing exactly fixed events of stuff. Mm. It gives you a bit more agency, and I think that's why I prefer to play those expansions than the saga expansions where you're faithfully following the books. I think I'm, it, would it be fair to say that to some extent this, this is a bit like fan fiction in that you're you're taking these uh, elements that that are already set, but the combinations you're putting putting them into are your own. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and as I say, I think you know that the saga expansions where you're following the books appeal perhaps to more people for exactly the reasons they don't appeal to me. Mm. That you are playing through the stories that you know, whereas for me, I know those stories and I know the way they turn out and. <laughs> If I'm doing something that isn't, that doesn't quite fit with that, then it's just jarring for me personally. And the stories were already written by somebody who's a better writer than me. So. And certainly better than me, yeah. Yeah. W- would you say you have a reasonably complete collection of this? Um... No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I this, think this, this is I've... one of my standard failure modes. I get into a game and then I buy everything for it. Yeah, I think I've got. I think I think I've got all of the first four um, Adventure Deluxe cycles, mm-hmm. um, which is enough to fill three standard FFG Ticket to Ride size boxes. Right. Um, I think there's at least another. I think there's another four. At least another four cycles after that. Yeah. Um, plus all the deluxe, uh, all the Saga boxes as well. There's a lot of content for it, and quite honestly, I don't feel like I need all of it. Mm. Yeah, you're um, possibly better on the whole self-control thing than I am. Well, it's one of those things, I think, where certainly when I first started playing it, it was you know, I, I wanted to keep going out and buying these adventure packs, and I, I'd beat one, and I'd want to go and get another one. Yeah. Um, but over time, you know, there are other games. You know, you've, it's the people throw away throw around the the, the term lifestyle game, don't they? Mm. And I certainly can't have more than one of those in my life. Yeah. And yeah. I think even one is possibly pushing how much room I have for it in my life because I have other things I need to be doing in my life. Um, yeah. And one and thing the, that the, I'd like to be doing is playing other games. I, th- I suspect the closest I get to that is Ashes Rise of the Phoenix Born, which is a, a two-player deck construction dueling game. Mm. Uh, but all of that does just about fit into the core box still. Uh, right. it, it had, I don't know, 10 or so expansions. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so if you take my, uh, as I say, four, four complete cycles, that's, what, 24 adventure packs, four deluxe boxes, um, plus a few of the Gen Con packs that I mentioned, like Murder at the Prancing Pony. Uh, of course, uh, I, I, I have forgotten to mention Eon's End, which, <laughs> which I, I think I've got up to I think I've squeezed it down to two boxes, but there is at least one more that I haven't opened yet. So yeah, maybe I should yeah, stop I, buying I, yeah. it. Yeah, I'm not even going to pretend it's the only game on my shelf where I, I, I struggle to compact everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Rings, the card game, or, or mm. Lord of the Rings LCG by, as you say, innate French, or to put it another way, the FFG design team. Yeah, they, they they credit a whole bunch of artists, but only him as the designer for the core set. Presumably, if I looked up all the expansions, there might be. There's a lot of names when you stick your head into the expansions, yeah. yeah.
So you, you lent me At the Gates of Loyang. I did, yes. And so. I, yeah, I, I played a game and simultaneously I felt I have bounced hard off this game and, you know, if I just played about ten more games, I might start to understand it. <laughs> um, I mean, apart from anything else, there are, I, I was looking through people's comments when, when it came out and at times when it has been cheap, there have been people mm-hmm. buying it just for those various wooden um, agricultural produce pieces. They, they are they, they are oddly pretty. Mm. Yeah, no, but, but you can get some very nice photos of the game if that's your thing. <laughs> um, the impression I got as as a new player, and I would emphasise that this is something that would go away with a few more mm. players. I, I, I'm pretty sure. Lots of moving parts, very tight, very unforgiving, and it is basically mm. an efficiency puzzle. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, and it would clearly reward a deep dive in a way that I mostly don't deep dive games. You know, I've, I've, I've played however many, whatever it was, 15 or so games of Zen on Profiteer, but that's mm. in the, in the two plus years since I bought it. Um, and I think something like this, I would have to be playing it every week. Yeah. Which is mostly a game I don't, I, I am starting to do that a bit more, to be fair. Um, Things, things like Ashes, I'm try, trying to uh, get some online games in simply so that I don't forget from one play to the next. Oh, hang on, I worked mm. out how to do this particular thing. Um, but yeah, the the this is you know first game, first two games. Um, feeling is good heavens, it's full of stars, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, is, to a certain extent, is this not all board games? Well, yeah, you know, all, all, all um, hobby hobby level board games are going to reward you more the more you play them if that's your thing. And I, I mean, I'm I'm with you that I very rarely do the the deep dive, going hard into a game, playing it back to back, and really delving into it. I think one can that, that some games definitely have more depth than others. I mean, something like mm. Pandemic or Flashpoint. Um, mm. You can pretty much. I suppose there's a question of whether they're hobby games or not. Well, yeah, but I mean, they they are sold sold to gamers as mm. as well as to the general public. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about you know the the full game, not the introductory uh, rules versions that uh, Flashpoint at least has. Mm-hmm. But I th- I think you know four or five or six games, you pretty much say, okay, th- these are the things that work, these are the things that don't, and mm. I'm I'm going to approach an, uh, a new map is a new puzzle to solve, but I, I, I pretty much know what's going to happen on the original map and how to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, whereas there, there are so many moving parts here that even without, you know, needing new maps or new scenarios or any of that stuff, simply mm. the gameplay of, of the base game is is going to keep one... Uh, engaged in working out what's where and how how to fix it for quite a while. I don't suppose you have. I was going to say the official Board Game Geek app, um, but I don't think it is official. I do not. So on their stats thing, and this is borrowed from um, from somebody else. Utilization as opposed as proposed by Friendless, who I assume is a, a BGG user assumes that if you play a game 10 more times, you gain 90% of the remaining utility. That's <laughs> so, what I always thought was a really interesting way of... Uh, the the mm. way that sort of geeks try to st- <laughs> statisticise everything. 
Yeah, but I, I do think that varies from game to game how many plays you will need to, to get to the 90% level. Or whatever, how, yeah. whatever you want to do. But, but, but the interesting thing about that is that it's, it's a moving threshold. Hmm. Well, that's, that's fair. Um, yeah, ten, ten, 10 more times you'll get 90% of the remaining utility. So that, that remaining utility is always changing. It's a proportion. Sure. So you could say, what, what would it be? Um, nine. <laughs> and of course, that's gonna, yeah, it's, as a generalization, as all generalizations do, it's gonna vary game to game. Yeah, so if, if I work that out, um, roughly, then if, if each game, if each individual game gives me 10% of what's left, mm. then 10 games will give me a, about 90% of what's left. Yeah. Um, but I, I I don't think that constant is is necessarily valid. I th- I think it would take, at least it would take me more games to get to the bottom of this, even though it's not a huge game with lots of expansions and alternatives mm-hmm. and things, than it would with with a, with a simpler game. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I certainly got a feeling of wow, I could try this or this or this or the other thing, yeah. and um, obviously to, to get good one would have to be trying all of those things and balancing them. I mean, in terms of um, something we, we talk about, or I talk about um, fairly often on this podcast, would you say it's a game that offers good depth to, to complexity? I think so, yeah. I mean, the individual things you're doing aren't super complex. No. Uh, I mean, probably the most complicated thing is that, you know, the, this going this step costs 11 points and then going the next step costs 12 points and so on. Mm. Um and that's not, you know, we're, we're both reasonably mathematically competent. This is this is not a hard thing. Um, mm. But I def- it definitely felt as if there there were a lot of things one would need to keep track of. Yeah. Um, and sort of f- fighting six fires at once and making sure none of them gets too badly <laughs> out of control. Yeah, yeah, the, the spinning plates problem. Mm. Which. Again, if if I were in a different sort of mood, and if if I if I had more time to do to have more leisurely games and and do, do a repeated dive onto it, I would probably enjoy more. Um, mm. I don't particularly at the moment, but like th- this is yeah. If if I were planning to do do the conventional, you know, work work till I nearly drop and then retire thing, um, then yeah, it would be a game to put aside for retirement. I suspect for me, that's interesting. Sim- yeah, simply so this because is, I, this isn't just uh, I can see the merits of why other people would enjoy this is uh, if you had the time you, you would I think so yeah um, if if I were in that more that sort of mood of you know okay I'm going to dedicate yeah. the, all my spare time this week is going to go on this specific game then then I think that would be more the way that would be rewarding than mm. as I might now try you know I'll play it now and I'll play it in three months time and I'll have forgotten everything mm. I played now <laughs> which is yeah which is kind of the way that I play it so th- this is me trying to say well I don't think I can give an, a I didn't super enjoy it this time round but this is not an negative review because I can see why I didn't <laughs> and if I dive back in <laughs> yeah interesting balance um, you could call it a steep learning curve if you want, if you wanted to put it in a, in a negative way um, because I, I certainly felt that my my first game was essentially almost all learning what happens, rather yeah, than yeah. getting better at it. But yeah, that's what the game is. 
And uh, there are certainly people in the One PG who play this a lot, and uh, oh god, yeah, yeah, get, getting getting that final fraction of a point. Yeah, uh, there's clearly a lot to, a lot what can do here. It, it looks superficially as if it's going to be random, but I get the strong impression that it really isn't going to be. It's just the order of things will vary, but you're always going to get the same things. You're always going to get something you can work with. Yeah, I mean, to, you know, to a certain extent, anything that has a, a, a reliance on a deck of cards, there's always some mm, randomness sure. there, and that, that is going to dictate things between some games. Um, but I don't think there's ever... Very rarely is I, have I reached the end of a game and thought, I've lost this game because I never got any good cards to come out. Yeah. I, I think that's one of those things. You, you can't really have a plan up front. You, you need to be flexible about how, how you yeah. respond to this or that, what you actually yeah. get to play with. Uh, so, yeah, a, a slightly dazzled at the gates of Loyang. <laughs> By Uwe Rosenberg. Hmm. Um, yeah. Roger, you lent me Sentinels of the Multiverse. Hmm. And I think I'm going to be saying some similar things to what you just said about at the gates of Loyang. Okay, because a lot of the, a lot of things you were just saying about Lord of the Rings... Sounded to me like things yeah. I would be saying about Sentinels and Multiverse. Yeah, and and it is a game that often gets recommended, um, particularly in the past when there weren't so many co-op LCGs. Mm-hmm. It often gets recommended in the same breath as Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, I was a little confused as to whether it was a deck construction game, whether it was a deck building game. Sure. And when we spoke about it before, I think I got a bit more of a hold of it that it wasn't either of those things. You play with a static deck, which in some respects resembles a deck building game um, but you're, you're building out a tableau in front of you with those cards that are interacting with each other and yeah I, I don't think in the games I've played I've ever gone through and exhausted a deck mm. so as you say a lot of the same things that people would the criticisms people were level at Lord of the Rings I, I felt that it was fiddly and complex through my first game um, it took me a while to, to get my head around what was going on mm-hmm. Um, and and this I have to say is is the new streamlined rules. Um, <laughs> basically, the, I must yeah. admit I I did not like the rule book at all. I, I'm not a big fan either. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to have to write one of my own. Yeah, there were certain things I think um, I couldn't find in the rule book at all. Um, there were other things that I eventually did find, um, and they were normally things that were in the big yellow boxes, which in the way that big yellow boxes shouldn't be, were oddly hidden. Mm. I yes. just wasn't looking in them. <laughs> um, I mean, they're obviously they're desi- designed there to highlight important things, but to me, they were outside of the rules. I was expecting them to be examples or something. I don't know. I wasn't looking there sure. for the rules. Um, so I, I did find it complex um, through the first game, as I say, trying to get my head around what was going on. Um, I'm fairly apathetic about US comics and superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I didn't grow up with them. I've got no particular nostalgia for them. I know you, you mentioned to me um, before that you know, all of these characters are very thinly veiled. You can tell so-and-so is meant to be so-and-so. I, I didn't get any of that. Um, I just don't have that pop culture knowledge. Yeah. Um, so, on you know, that sort of particular level of enjoyment that I would suspect a lot of people would get from the game was completely absent for me. Mm, I, um, I, I should say it's largely absent for me. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly more mm. 
pop culturally aware than you, but a, a lot of these are clearly references that are going right past me. There's probably not many people you say that to, is there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm usually the least pop culturally aware in most groups of people. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, I think for, for that reason, for me, it became an entirely mechanical game, mm. um, which I think just emphasised some of the fiddliness for, for me. Sure. Um, I didn't have the, the theme to, to help carry it. Um, so, yeah, that provides an a, a unusual viewpoint, I suppose, that I, I, I can see if, if you're into superheroes and American comic books... Yeah, the, this the, is probably a great game. The funny thing is, I'm not. I'm, I'm really not a superhero fan at all. Um, yeah, you, you did say that. I, I think part of it is, in, in fact, that the, this may be where I'm, I'm parting company with the designers slightly because the the uh, game designer and uh, the artist do a podcast, mm. the Letters Page, in which they talk about mm-hmm. the lore and background of these various yeah. characters. And I listened to a few episodes, and then I realised, well, hang on a minute. The thing I'm enjoying about this game is that I've got these relatively blank slate characters that I can make my own. Right. And I'm getting that nostalgic feeling of the lore is out there, but I don't know it, the way I did when I occasionally read comics as a kid. Mm -hmm. And if the lore actually is out there, that's a whole lot less fun for me. Yeah. Uh, so, so I've actually, I've actually stopped listening to the podcast and I I would rather just make up my own, (laughs) um, Make up your own stories yeah. again, and back to that. Yeah, it's interesting. There was one character, um, Hacker, hmm. and I couldn't decide whether or not that was racist. I think they've made some. Effort. I mean, they have actually talked to pe- people fr- from the uh, Maori cultures and tried tried to hmm. get some idea of how it works. And yeah, it's not it's great, but uh, yeah, and for, for that matter. Part, part of the it's problem, difficult. of course, and is and that quite... they're, say, they're saying, you know, we're doing 1950s, 1960s, 1970s yeah. style comic art, and that means a whole lot of uh, low-cut dresses on the women. But... Yes, yeah, it's difficult on so many levels, and, um, yeah. and you know, it's difficult for uh, a white, middle-class British male to decide what's racist and what isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm probably not the best person to judge that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I, I believe say, they I are making some efforts, asking, uh, but I don't know the details. Yeah, asking a, a a Maori or maybe even a, you know, another um, Polynesian, mm. probably better people to ask than me. Yeah, to be fair to them, I do not see them saying, "Oh well, comics were like that" as an excuse for stuff. Uh, they they do mm. seem to be actually trying to take this reasonably seriously. Right. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you know I I, I wanted to mention. Mm. Um, no, that's fair enough. But yeah. No, overall, yeah, as I say, mechanically solid, but for me, not interesting enough to to want to return to it. Mm. Um, I, I'm a little surprised, not not at that specifically, but at, at my own um, thoroughgoing enjoyment <laughs> of it. Because, you know, as you say, it, it's it's not a theme that I especially love. It's yeah, it just has for for me. It, it comes with a sense of fun, and I can't I can't work out where that's coming from mm. specifically. But as you say, I mean, maybe you know, you talk about nostalgia. Maybe it's nostalgia is almost the wrong word. Maybe it's a sort of um, exoticism of uh, mm, maybe the childhood you never knew. 
Yeah, um, th- this is where I incidentally heard about the retailers thing because um, they have just had the Kickstarter for the first big box expansion for this. Uh, right. For the previous edition, they had a lot of little expansions, and they were—they have been told by retailers very firmly, "No, we re- we would really much rather sell one big box than six little ones mm. with the same content." Yeah, and so that's the approach they're planning to take, at least at the moment. Right. So, yeah, well, I'm sorry about that because no, no, not, no, not, no, not because I think you're wrong, I'm, but I'm... because this is a thing that has. has, has it's one of the very few games that I'm, I've deliberately set out to play solo, even when it's not part of a challenge or something. I'm a very bad solo gamer. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to play it. It's yeah, something that I've seen mentioned a lot of time over the years. And, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad I've had that opportunity, and it, it didn't click with me. But I could, I could also see that yes, if I sat down, like you were saying with Liang, if I sat down and played ten games of it, there was a game there that mm. I could get to grips more with. Um, it just wasn't. Again, like you were saying, Ryan, it wasn't biting me in the way that I wanted to do that. Well, that's fair enough. Uh, so that's Sentinels of the Multiverse Definitive Edition. Mm. And, yeah, you lent me Cottage Garden. So yeah, yeah, the, very... the Uwe Rosenberg doubleheader. Yeah. To put you off forever. I wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> the, the thematic gap... Of the, I did enjoy this, I think, more, more than Loyang on, on my introductory game. Mm. Uh, though again, I obviously did very badly. Um, the thematic gap for me was—I'm not much of a gardener, but one of the few things I, I know about in gardening is you care about which plants go where, and mm-hmm. not caring about which plants go where, just the shape of the polyomino, was was a, was a <laughs> bit of a, a bit of a wrench for me. Um, apart from that, I, I I loved the primary gameplay loop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and I, I, I got into that relatively easily and then as I think you mentioned uh, when we talked about it at greater length mm-hmm. that final round um, negative mode you mm-hmm. know each time you you progress you're taking a penalty thing and you're trying to finish it off as quickly as possible yeah. I did find very frustrating um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah the, the, the skill is to try and finish it just before that round starts sure <laughs> I, it, it's good that you you can see it coming because you, you've got the mm. progress thing that's t- taking you towards there, and you know uh, one of the classic things of, of a Euro game is there is no thematic reason, but it takes six rounds, and at the end of six rounds, the game ends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and th- this seems really to, uh, as a um, an extension of that. It, it is deliberately punishing you for having stuff still in progress at that point. Yeah. Which is fair enough. It just, yeah, I, d- I didn't spot it quite early enough and it irked me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is not a criticism perhaps... of the game. This is a criticism of my playing of the game. Well, as you say, I mean, perhaps uh, as a polyomino game, you, you don't necessarily immediately think of it as an efficiency puzzle. Mm. But if you think of time as a resource, it very much is. Yeah. I mean, I, this, this is most of the, most of the Rosenberg I've played. I think I played Agricola a long time ago and did very badly. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely getting a feeling of, um, you, you really ought to be able to, to plan out your entire turn before you start doing anything because every action matters, every, every square matters. Mm. You, you can't afford to be sloppy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, cardboard wheelbarrow. How can you go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> As you say, it's, it's a pretty game. Um, a little bit garish maybe for my taste. I don't think it's the prettiest game in the trilogy. Mm. But it's, it's certainly, yeah. Well, my, my standard for garish is ethnos. 
which has, among other things, bright pink and green plastic pieces. So, oh yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't a complete wash with you anyway. Yeah, um, it, it's pointing in the same direction as Loyang in that I could I could obviously see how I would do better with repeated plays. Mm. I did feel I was getting a little bit more of a handle on this in the first game than I did in Loyang in the first game. Sli- it's, it's slightly fewer things game. moving about. Yeah, it's a much lighter game. I mean, it, yeah, what we said, Loyang, um, I was glad you agreed that it had, uh, more depth than complexity. Mm. Um, you know, mm. Cottage Garden's got even less complexity. And still quite, I mean, I could see all sorts of things that one could try mm. for a future game. And yeah. Ch- changing strategy in mid-game would probably be an error. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it usually is in these things. <laughs> Yeah. So, Cottage Garden. Yeah. And you lent me Terminator Dark Fate mm. by some designers I can't remember. But presumably designed by somebody. <laughs> One moment, but I, I, I will grab that in a moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Jack Caesar, uh, which is not a name I've come across before. No. Um, um, he's also done... Highland of the Board Game, Pacific Rim Extinction, and Lords of Valor, Dragon Bond. Those are his top games on BGG, apparently. Okay, so this is somebody that specialises in IP games. It looks like it, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I played this solo, and I also played it two-player as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Which isn't very different. It's, it's not hugely different. Uh, I mean, solo... Yeah, you're playing basically the same game. You're, you're controlling two characters, but just using one deck. Mm. Um, so, I felt like some of... I, I felt like it was a bit of a confused game in some of the guards. Mm. Um, I felt like it was trying to appeal to a mass market. I watched that film. Oh, here's this game. I'll play that game. Yeah. Um, and also appeal to hobby gamers. And I think it kind of maybe didn't do either of those things as well as it could have done. Is that mm. fair? Yeah, it makes sense. I, I I don't have much of an idea of what the uh, what mass market gamers are like. Probably the closest I come is you know doing a demo at Essen, and I'm I'm yeah. showing them say Flashpoint, and we might have, have you know, parents and kids rock up and want want to play it. Uh, mm. And the the main thing I've learned from that is there there is no way the game can be too simple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, I mean, if, if you think about, I mean, maybe this, is, this isn't something you experience. Um, Christmas, I, I might take games to play with my parents, mm. and that's always a bit of a, a reality check at that point of things that I take for granted that are in the board game vocabulary I've built up over the years are completely alien concepts to them. You have to start from square one. Yeah, I think also, um, you know, when I was growing, growing up, it seemed as if there were only about five games. I know this is not true. Yeah. But, um, and you know, with what I've been doing this, playing modern board games for 10 plus years now, and I am used to reading a rule book and absorbing it and, and, and having a pretty good idea of what to do mm. as part of a typical gaming session or being taught a game well, as I part mean, of yeah. a typical gaming session. It's just something I expect to do every time I'm yeah. playing games. And I mean, yeah, a perfect example of this, at the start of this episode, we were talking about a couple of games, and we, 
we referenced Pandemic hmm. as a shorthand for we know how these games work. Sure. And deck building is exactly the same thing. We've played deck builders before. We understand deck building. Hmm. Casual person off the street does not. Yeah, that's fair. And um, I, you, you've seen the manual. I think you probably agree with me that it, it's a bit rough. Yeah, yeah, um, but it's also very short. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there is, yeah, there's a lot of flicking backwards and forwards, and there's lots of pictures which would, would help, I suspect. Um, but it's, it's not a rules-heavy game by any stretch. Mm. It, it's not as complicated as I found the manual made it look when I, when I was first going through it. Abs- absolutely, yes. Um, I think you know the first game we played were that is one of those where we've sort of halfway through the game went, actually, this is quite simple. Mm. As you say, the, the rules, you thought, oh, God, what's this going to be? And I think, yes, that could be tightened up. It's a bit of a mess absorbing that information to begin Particularly with. the bit in the rules where they actually misname one of the cards that you're looking for to build your initial yeah. deck from. Yeah, not great. <laughs> and I think that's where I say it sort of falls between these two camps, where your casual gamer is going to perhaps try to read the rule book, perhaps try to play a game, and then probably never play it again. Mm. More experienced board gamers are going to get to the end of their first one or two games and with obvious and honourable exceptions, Roger, (laughs) many people I think at that point are going to say, well, okay, I've played games like this before. This is a bit light. Um, I've got other things that are similar that I prefer. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've been considering recently is whether I'm going to sell my copy of Bad Maps, which is a programming mm-hmm. game with a pirate theme. And I, I enjoyed it the first time I played it, but I'm realising that I've got Vault and I've got Robo Rally, and that, that there's basically no occasion on which I would get out Bad Maps instead of one of those. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I mean, just to, to recap this for people that can't remember or didn't listen to <laughs> the episode in which we discussed this, um, this is a, a sort of... Um, Ascension-esque deck builder. You've got a row of cards. Mm. Um, you are buying cards from that row, which will either give you more buying power or attack power. Um, I, I think of it as very is... Star Realms-esque because that's the one I've played more, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to say Ascension-esque because uh, I think that was the first game that did the, the row yeah. as opposed to Dominion with the, you know, the, the stacks of cards. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so yeah, you're buying buying cards to buy more cards, buying cards to attack uh I can't remember the name of the bad robots, uh, but you're attacking the bad robots. Rev, Rev nine, apparently. <laughs> I, Rev I haven't nine. seen I the to... film. But that why why no. I haven't seen the film is a matter for the film podcast. Cross promote, cross promote. Which you which you should plug more often. Um <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say Revenance, but I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> um you're you're attacking that to win the game. Mm-hmm. Um, if you defeat the the Rev Nine, then you, you've won the game, and you're doing that cooperatively. Um, and, and if any if, of you get knocked out of the game, then you've all lost. Yeah, there is a there is a variant in the back of the rulebook which says um, that you can carry on playing, if, um, and if you, if your character dies, you can carry on doing the the hunt phase, and any damage you take would get passed on to the player of your left. Mm. Um, and again, I think that's a rule that's specifically written for casual gamers that don't want to have player elimination. 
Yeah, I, that seems to be the it wor- seems worst of bit... both worlds because you have been eliminated yeah. and the game is going on rather than starting Absolutely. a new one. Absolutely, I think that's a terrible variant that I can't think why anybody would <laughs> want to play that. But at some point during playtesting, somebody said, "Oh, we've got player elimination. That's a bad thing." Well, but that's the thing. You haven't. What what you've got is if a player is eliminated, then you've all lost. End of game. Oh well, yeah, true. Yeah, I can't think why that rules in in there. That variance in there. Um, solo, as you say, you control two characters. Your characters have um, an ongoing ability you can use through the game. They also have one unique starter card. Mm-hmm. Um, so playing solo, you have two unique starter cards. You have two characters. On each round, you can choose which of those two characters' abilities you're using for that round. Mm-hmm. There is one character in the game, um, and no prizes for guessing which, that I think is utterly overpowered to the point that it breaks the game. <laughs> is, that, is that the cut cannot be eliminated by wound cards? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you lose the game by having too many wound cards, except if you're that character, you can't be eliminated. Mm-hmm. So playing solo in particular, you cannot lose the game if you're playing that character. As long as you play that one each time. Uh, choose yeah. that one at the beginning of each turn, yeah. Yeah, you, you can't lose, you literally can't lose the game. Mm. Which, which I think is more than overpowered. It's, it's literally <laughs> game breaking. Yeah, that, 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 that may un- well be a, didn't, didn't quite think this through in solo mode, because obviously in multiplayer mode, you're always going to have one character, at least one character who isn't that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I kind of get it. It's, it's, it's a familiar problem. I think, yeah, you know, any, any game that relies on an IP like this, um, that has one character that is the IP. So think of Conan, think of Batman. Mm-hmm. At some point, that character has to be demonstrably better than all of the other characters. Yeah. But that just leads to problems because then why would you play as any of the other characters? Mm. It, I think, yeah, when you're playing as a group, then everybody wants to be that, the best character, because they're obviously the best character. <laughs> playing solo, the only reason you can play the other characters is because you're wanting to explore the full depth of the game. I mean, I suppose the slight flip side is that you don't, you don't get any other neat ability. On the other hand, that one, you, that, you know, you don't get stuff that lets you do more. Yeah. But. And I think it, it, it's, it's an, it's a, it's an IP problem. If you were mm. designing a game from the bottom up without um, you know, designing it to an IP, you probably wouldn't. Put then that you design in, yeah. characters which, uh, yes, they have different powers, but more or less they're all in the same ballpark of um, how effective those powers are. Mm. And it might take you more experience to begin to understand how some of them work, but they're not by magnitudes worse. Yeah. But I think approaching a game, as I say, where you're dealing with an IP where there is one lead character, there is an expectation from the fans that that character is the best character. <laughs> mm. Yeah, e- even so, I mean, they could have said, you know, instead of your, um, instead of three wound kills you, you could have said four or five rather than infinite. Yeah, I mean, you could even just have it as a, um, an ongoing ability that every round, if you draw one or mo- one or more wound cards into your hand, you can discard one. Mm. That, that's achieving a similar thing in a way that isn't completely game breaking. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say it's game breaking only, as you say, in the solo mode. And I, I suspect part of the problem may mm. be that they didn't they didn't realise that when they were setting up yeah. the solo mode. 
<laughs> are, are we suggesting they didn't playtest that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, I think we've talked before about this, this idea that a lot of the time, um, supposedly the fans demand a solo mode. Mm. And and from some designers, at least, it seems quite grudging that that, that they provide it. So yeah. maybe, maybe there's a bit of that going in as well. Maybe, that, uh, maybe. But yeah, it's um, it's a light light game again. I guess like Sentinels that we were talking about earlier. If um, if you know if that's your thing, if you if you're into Terminator, which I, I, you know, I mean, we just mentioned that you do a film podcast, Roger. I don't know if I should admit on air that I don't think I've ever seen any of the Terminator films all the way through. <laughs> well, uh, we, we did actually cover um, Terminator 1 and 2 uh, a few episodes mm. back. Uh, this is Ribbon of Memes. Go, go see. Uh, uh, but we, we, we stopped there because yeah, I mean, we, we, we felt really Terminator 2 was the high point and this, this mm-hmm. is now four film, three, four films later. And by, by many accounts, it's a bit better than some of the stuff that came in between. But yeah, I haven't got around to watching it myself yet. And if you, as as is the way with some of these series, and, and if you had said to you know me who had just watched Terminator Two in the nine in the early nineties that that I would ever yeah. feel that way, I would I would be amazed and shocked. <laughs> I, I'm I maintain that Schwarzenegger's best films Predator. Mm, I I would make a point a case for Last Action Hero, but nobody likes Last Ooh. Action Hero. So. That's that's, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a controversial choice. But yeah, I mean, obviously I'm familiar with Terminator. I've probably seen all of the first and some of the second, if not all of the second film at some point. I just don't think I've ever sat down and watched either of them from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, so as with, um, as with Sentinels that we're talking about before, it's not a, it's not an IP that does much for me. Mm-hmm. Perhaps if you do, you'll get more enjoyment just from that, but it's still not going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's not a deep game. It's um, it's relatively quick, relatively light. End of evening, beginning of evening filler. Yeah, I mean if that's your thing. It's it's also a small box, so it's so it's a lower priority yeah. for being sold. But it, but if somebody came along to me and said, "Hey, I really want to buy this game off you," I I wouldn't have any hesitation in selling it to them. Yeah, we've all got those small boxes that hang around just because they're small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, Terminator Dark Fate by. Um, that person you mentioned earlier, uh, Jack Caesar. You, you wouldn't think I was actually a designer, would you? Taking note of <laughs> <laughs> giving credits out and. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. This has been more games and time. We'll be back again next month. Uh, meanwhile. We have t-shirts, mouse pads, all sorts of fun stuff. Absolutely. Go check us out on uh, on Redbubble, on our Redbubble page. And there'll be a link in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thanks.